Welcome to Photo Geek Weekly, episode 132, uh, the second live episode of this podcast. I'm your host, Don Kamarechka, here with you uh, on, what is it, uh, December 9th of 2020. And uh, I'm so grateful to be able to do this type of thing live because uh, I've got a good buddy of mine, Steve Brazel, who's here in the co-pilot seat today, and he's running the board while I get mine up and running because, you know, the first time we did this, we had a lot of positive feedback. Um, Steve, how are you? I'm doing quite well. Uh, it is, I've been telling you for a long time that you needed to do these lives, and I am so glad that we have started doing these shows live. And, uh, you know, it's, it's the photo geekery show. We go into the industry news, whether it's ethics or technology or where um, we perceive the word photography moving into in terms of public Both good perception. and bad. And, oh, yeah, exactly. You know, we, Story we don't five. Just, just saying. <laughs> oh, God. Uh, yeah, we'll get there. I, that was a late addition, but I just had to add that in. Um, so, you know, with, with the world the way it is right now and photography changing. I mean, it's been changing before the pandemic, and there's so many other things that are changing within this world. How do you find yourself, like your own photographic interests? Have how have they shifted uh, this year? Because obviously, concert photography uh, hasn't been a thing for a considerable no. amount of time. Um, so, like, are you picking up your camera these days? Uh, yes and no. I'm not picking it up as much as I wish I could because I really wish that concerts were going right now, but. The truth of the matter is I don't see concerts happening anytime until maybe fall of next year, somewhere around there. What I've done picking it up is a couple of things. I've done experimentation with it. And then at Princeton Photo Workshops, you did a live remote class on macro photography, which I think everybody that has a camera has at some point or another experimented with a 100 macro or a 60 or 50 whatever macro and tried to do it but I sat through your class at Princeton photo workshop and that kind of inspired me. So I I've tried some of that. I'm looking to get some extension tubes and uh, but other than that, no, I mean, the truth of the matter is, and, and I, I may be unique in this. I know a lot of people who it's look, as long as I've got my camera in my hand, I'm happy. But for me, I'm happy when I'm in a photo pit at a concert. It's what I photograph. It's what I love to, or behind the scenes. It's what I love to photograph. And it's really the one thing I care about. I live vicariously through my podcast guests. Well, and you know, there have been, uh, you should say, um, there have been some, uh, music, uh, concerts and, um, and performances. <clears throat> I don't think there should have been, um, yeah. but there have been, uh, some, and I would not have gone to photograph them in either way. Cause I, I don't really, um, uh, play into that mentality, but. Uh, I, and I'm glad that you mentioned Princeton Photo Workshop because uh, I've got another upcoming macro photography four-week course uh, that I've done once previously uh, that was really well received. And so uh, you can always check that out. But we're all virtual uh, these days in, in this strange world. And um, you know, it seems increasingly that photography is becoming, um, I don't want to say a virtual endeavor, but a computational one. You know, it's, yes. like, it, it's, it's not so much as we're just collecting light on a substrate, uh, whether that's a sensor or a piece of film, and that just gets processed uh, to reveal the photons that were detected, right? That, that is the traditional of, uh, element of photography. But our first story is interesting um, because in the last year, especially, in the last two years, really, um, this has become more prominent. And from Petapixel, um, AI editing 
will not ruin photography, not in capital letters. It will not ruin photography. And uh, AI, and they say, oh, I'll read the the first uh, sentence here. AI is the number one buzzword in the digital photography world, whether it's AI or deep learning or um, any of those types of phrases. It's just computers were getting smarter programming them, making algorithms that can adjust themselves. Um, and there's a lot of experimentation going on in this space. Um, that's not to say it's all successful. Uh, and so the the main uh, subheadline in this article is that the photography software industry has pulled a massive persuasion trick on you. And uh, to cut to the point here, and I really want to get your opinion on this stuff, Steve, um, the, uh, I'll read this paragraph. And I think that's the most poignant part about it, because there's no turning back from this, yeah. right? Th- this is, right? This is it's only going to continue. It's, it's here. here, and it's going to continue, and it's going to continue, and so on. Um, so the AI photo editing boom has created a major discussion over ethics. Uh, uh, Michael Como is the uh, uh, Como. I'm not sure how you pronounce French names, and I'm a French heritage. Anyhow, Michael, thank you. Um, The AI photo editing boom uh, has created a major discussion over ethics. Is it wrong to use AI to reshape faces, replace skies, to make outright fake images? And the AI cha- uh, and will AI change photography as we know it forever? Questions like this play right into the photography software industry's hands. Because when you debate the ethics of AI software, you do two things. Number one, you are saying that this is actually artificial intelligence technology and not just a clever angle cooked up by the marketing department. And two, you are also saying that it works well. And number one, it's not artificial intelligence. There is no sentience to this. Right. Um, And it's machine learning is really what it is. It's machine learning. And sometimes it just outright fails miserably. And and it's so easy to, I've got some photos of, of my daughter uh, on a swing and I turned my iPhone into portrait mode and it can't properly detect the metal chain link things on the fence. Um, and there's like a random blurry blotch in them because it just it couldn't figure that out. Like it was just not part of its equation and it had a problem interpreting the information it interpreted the best that it knew but it wasn't accurate to reality now it will be getting better uh and it will be a continuously growing thing to get better and better but um photography has changed as soon as you started uh dodging and burning in a dark room photography changed from just the flat negative as soon as you took an image into Photoshop, it started changing from the flat digital file. Uh, and do you think that this artificial intelligence stuff is valuable to the core integrities of photography? Or are those integrities simply changing and riding the wave? Wow, that's, I, didn't, I didn't see you coming with those words. Core, <laughs> core integrity of photography, I think, does go to a different place, right? But like you just said, A, it's not really artificial intelligence. It's a programmer that wrote code to decipher and portrait mode on an iPhone is a perfect example. Portrait mode doesn't work well on me. My bald head, sometimes it has difficulty making a clean cut around my head. Uh, I quite often, if I'm trying a new whiskey, will put the bottle there and put the glass there and try and do portrait mode. And it can't sense the depth edge of that 
glass that my eye can decipher with no problem. Artificial, real artificial intelligence would figure out, okay, it's a glass, therefore it has depth, therefore look at curvature, therefore figure out where the back is. There's a lot of things that could happen in real artificial intelligence. But the ethical part, like so many things in photography, the ethical part is both yes and no at the same time, right? If you're a wedding photographer and and a bride and groom get married at noon on a golf course and it's a cloudy, boring day or super bright day and you have to expose for the bride and groom and blow the sky out, is it unethical to make their wedding picture awesome by putting in another sky? No, because it, it's not photojournalism. There's no integrity issues there. You're but making- on the other side of that, Steve, okay. what if, what if um, you had a moment where it was a gloomy uh, depressing kind of atmosphere in the day and you take them out to a waterfront for a photo shoot and there is just a miracle of a blast of lightning that happens between them and you capture that for real. It's magical because it actually happened. Putting that lightning strike in between when it didn't actually happen uh, in that concept I think is disingenuous. And, well, uh, and again, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say to you then, Everything comes down to intent, right? If I am trying to put a lightning strike in and have the viewer, excuse me, we just finished an hour and 20 minute critique show, I'm losing my voice, and have the viewer believe that lightning strike struck right next to a bride, well, that's unethical, you know, arguably, because I'm trying to pawn it off as real. But if my intent is to build a product, that a bride and groom are going to like and buy, that a mother of a child is going to like and purchase and and effectively vote with green money, then no, uh, I'll go to reshaping bodies and faces, which we do with liquefy and things like that, or even touching up blemishes, right? In fashion photography. The rule of thumb is that you remove things that are not permanent, like pimples, you don't remove moles. However- right. We've been touching up bodies. We've known it. It's got a word now, a photoshopped, right? That's a known adjective, basically. Used to be airbrushed, but yes. Used to be airbrushed. Well, I would argue, and the industry has kind of come to see, or at least the customer base has come to see, that that arguably is unethical because you are convincing people that that is the perfect body. And some companies have changed that practice. But again- if you're trying to pawn that off as this is what this real person looks like, yeah, I'd say it's unethical. If on the other hand, you're making a poster to put text on, arguably not. It all depends on intent. And and that's, that's really important, but it used to be. <clears throat> I, and, and I remember at the beginning of the HDR era, <clears throat> when you got a lot of really grungy, overly processed, I call them clown puke images, um, that are just a colorful bunch of nonsense. And uh, puking. I'm now going to have that in my head. Yeah, yeah, you're welcome. So the the idea uh, with that was it was so easy to do something bad. Like it was so easy to just press a bunch of buttons, layer filters over filters and come up with something that to your sensibilities was okay, but you know, not a lot of other people would agree. Um, But to do anything meaningful in Photoshop had a certain level of skill required. I mean, not a whole lot, uh, but you you had to know what the tools were. You know how to know how to use the liquify tool or whatever else you were trying to do uh, and do some experimentation and learn how it fails and how it succeeds. Um, But I think that 
what the big push now is in software is that uh, your desired effect is back to that HDR scale of simplicity of just pressing a button for a preset to say, well, that preset says take off five pounds or oh, that one says take off 10. Let's hit right. that one instead. Um, and it just does it because it's it's understanding human form better and, and so on and so forth. So it, it's back down to that simplicity, except instead of looking like garbage, it actually looks pretty good. Uh, and And I think that's the world that we have to embrace right now, whether or not you choose to do it. Uh, it's just a part of the process, and I I generally choose not to. Uh, I'm, and I'm sure at some point I might embrace certain elements of that, especially when it comes to upscaling images. And I find that those techniques are really viable uh, for for printing purposes. And I don't think that you're really changing reality in any meaningful way. Um, but no matter how you slice it, uh, so, sorry, continue. No, I was just going to say, but there's a couple things that they, they touch on in this article that need to be addressed. Please. Some I agree with, some I don't. So first of all, the author makes the comment that because we're talking about it, because we're calling it AI, the marketing team wins, right? They have got us thinking about it past sale. That's immediately a marketing challenge right there for everything. Yep. But they make the argument or make the statement, I should say, quote, why did digital cameras beat film cameras? Because digital is more convenient. And I'd argue that's that's over, oversimplifying when he had the column space to make it more specific. There's a lot of reasons that people switch to digital more than film uh, beside just convenience. The other thing is he talks about the bloat, that software is becoming bloated with all the AI software. Now, that one I not only agree, but I can give you examples. I remember when Microsoft Word was a word processor, and then and I used to teach it at the time, and then they started adding graphs if you wanted to import your Excel spreadsheet, and then they started adding image editing capabilities. And Microsoft Office, as we knew it at the time, became extremely bloated, slow running. Uh, so there are a lot of things that they mentioned in this particular article that I think I agree with and disagree with, but then he references someone else. This is where I really, this article stuck me. He references a landscape photographer and YouTuber by the name of Thomas Heaton, who did a video called AI editing will ruin photography as we know it. I love and, this. Yeah. And, and I watched it and really the title isn't kind of how he said it. He posited oh, it's it as, totally. Yes. He posited it as a question. Thomas was not being, you know, weird in the way that he said it in any way, but there have always been purists, always been purists, film over digital, analog music over digital music, painting over photography when photography first came out, Mac versus PC, electronic ver versus traditional instruments. Purism of art is not a unique thing. And with photography specifically, to me, and I may be missing some, but to me, there's three things that come into play. It's either documentarian, journalism or art. And if you as a photographer choose to look at what you're creating as purely art, as long no as the post apply. work that you're doing fits what you are seeing your work as, dude, go for it and use it. I, I guess to me, Stephen, I think to a lot of people, uh, you, you're right about those three categories. And, and there's certain rules of ethics and, uh, and a rule book that you should follow uh, depending on what you're doing. But it used to be very clear to know that a photojournalist 
would send the role of film into whatever, uh, you know, media outlet that they were shooting for. Uh, and they would, uh, you know, scan or uh, enlarge or do whatever that from whatever era of photography, uh, and then that was that, right? That that was it. Uh, but now the lines are being blurred such that if people are trying to manipulate an image, it's harder to tell. And you can go back to uh, like the days. Well, of, uh, yeah. well, the, the days of Stalin editing people out of the photographs after he made them disappear in the real world, and then make them disappear in all of the images that he had, which, which every uh, divorcee wants to do. <laughs> right. Uh, with whatever budget you have, if Stalin could do it back then, you can do it even easier now. And I'm not uh, saying that that's a good thing. But my, my point is that uh, image manipulation and photography, they've always been hand in hand, uh, just walking forward. And uh, we're at a point now where the lines are blurred so heavily between those three categories that you defined, that if somebody says, I didn't edit it, it's very hard for you to prove them right or wrong either way. Okay, but the ethical breach, is that the right phrase I'm looking for? Ethical breach? The ethical breach there isn't that they used AI. It's that they lied about it, right? Yeah, so in other words, it. going back to the shot, it's not the AI. AI is a tool, and as long as it's used, it's. it's I'm a, I always go back to photojournalism, right? There's generally rules in photojournalism that you can crop, color correct, dodge, and burn lightly. Can't remove things, et cetera. If you take a photojournalistic shot and you edit it to photojournalistic ethics, you're fine. If you choose to clone somebody out, the problem isn't the editing software that you used. It's not the clone tool. It's that you cloned somebody out and then pawned it off as, as journalism. And the article has a subheading re relating to the uh, uh, the video that you had just mentioned from Thomas Heaton. Um, Only you can ruin photography. Um and, yes. and that, I think, is really the key, that we get to choose which tools that we want to use, and we get to choose how we discuss it in our art form. And for me, a lot of the stuff that I shoot, whether it's snowflakes or a water droplet refraction type image, the magic is that it's real in camera. And if I faked anything, I would be upfront about it. And if I wasn't, and I was called out on it, it would ruin my reputation. And I don't think that's going to change at all. I think that's always been a part of it. And we need to embrace that photography as a whole um, is about that art form. The art form will not ever go away. But the baseline of normalcy for ethics, I think, is shifting. Because it's so easy to press a button and take those five pounds off and just say, nah, it's, that's, that's how I look. Well, and Terrell says in the chat, and I always love when Terrell's in the chat because Terrell, Terrell is my kind of photographer, right? He's a thinking man's photographer, thinking man or woman's photographer. I think many of these AI products are for the general population that just want their photo to look good, the click and publish set, pros, hobbyists, and enthusiasts will judiciously well, judiciously leverage the tech. And I agree with that, except I've seen too many times where there's a wedding photographer that gets called out because they just started and they went and harvested other people's pictures and put them in their portfolio to try and sell themselves as a wedding photographer as though they shot the pictures, right? So I think, yes, in general, pros are going to be ethical. 
average Joe may not even know what the ethics are. But again, it's the photographer and we all tend to know right and wrong, I think. And, and on a slight aside, though, um, I, uh, yeah, I'll talk about it. Uh, I, I had a, a, a friend of mine send me a note this morning that found a photo of mine on a website, a, uh, a photo, a website where you can share photos, where you can upload your own content. And that's as specific right. as I'm going to get. Um, that uh, they, uh, they cropped out my watermark, uh, allegedly. I mean, the image was in a proper framing with a watermark on it. And just enough of the bottom of the image was removed to remove my watermark in the crop. So I'm alleging that that might be intentional. They've put their own watermark on the image. And um, this is somebody in a foreign country that did this. Um, but the company, uh, while they operate in multiple countries that owns the website, they also operate in the United States. And uh, one of the things oh. I, I, I typically do is uh, I typically look towards uh, the U.S. Copyright Office has a registry of uh, DMCA agents. So if you're a company uh, that is hosting content uploaded by other people, in order to qualify for safe harbor uh, exemptions uh, in, in the uh, Digital Millennium Copyright Act, you have to have a registered agent for which I can serve a DMCA takedown notice. It's got to right. be in the registry. If you don't have somebody there, you don't get those protections. Um, because how else I, I could I just like send a random uh, email to info at whatever, or, you know, right. you have to have a registered agent uh, specifically defined. And this particular website, this company did not. And uh, I've sent that information to my lawyer today. But the, 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 po <laughs> the point of that is that the person took my work, purported it to be their own, and was completely fine with that. And that's somebody that's out in the photographic community amongst other photographers. And has nothing to do with AI software, right? It has nothing I mean, to do with AI software. Ethics, People can be unethical all they want. come from many places. Exactly. Exactly. So, you know, I, I think that the ethics uh, marker in photography, I really wish we had a solid way to define how an image might be manipulated. Uh, an AI software that could go in and potentially def uh, detect noise pattern differentials to see where something might be cloned. Uh, to, well, that, ha to that happened. We discussed this a year or so ago. Google came out with a software package that can identify where an image had been edited. This is true, but it's not open source and it's not free not, in an app yeah. that everybody has by default yep. that scans any image that they see and shows issues of where things have been modified, squished, squeezed, replaced, whatever. Which, honestly, if I could have a plugin in my web browser, whether it's Chrome or Firefox or whatever, that would automatically scan every image and highlight areas of potential uh, modification, that's the way I would want to view everything. Because it would yeah. just add a layer of truth to things that other people are not doing. Uh, except that, that would that would ruin digital artistry in some ways. Well, no, I, I, I if I could press press a button and turn it off and and know okay, that it's go. digital artistry. You know, I mean, it, 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 there could be a toggle switch somewhere. Yeah, um, but um, anyhow, let's move on to our next story, which is one that I, I. I don't think we're going to spend a whole lot of time on, but it is the evolution of the computational photography and the ability for us to uh, to do more with our imaging devices. Uh, and from DP Review, 
uh, Qualcomm unveils its new Snapdragon 888 SOC, system on a chip, um, with three ISPs uh, capable of 8K video, 120 frames per second still shooting, and 960 frames per second slow motion and more. I guess the first thing to unpack from this, Steve, is what is an ISP? Image signal processor. So in every smartphone today, from iPhone to Android, you have an image signal processor that does the processing of the JPEG image. So the sensor captures raw data, the engineers, and that's why a Samsung phone might look more saturated than, you know, in their photos than a photo from an iPhone. Those engineers have chosen to run their signal processing to take that raw image, punch up the sharpness or punch up the saturation at a different amount than the engineers did at Apple. And having three ISPs is advantageous for things like what Apple does with their photos when you snap a photo on uh, iPhone. It takes, I think it's nine photos. It stacks them, analyzes sharpness, and assembles all of those nine images into one shot processed JPEG or HEIF image uh, in real time. Having three of those means you've got some computational power behind you. Well, and, and so you can do some of these things concurrently. Um, you could uh, do entirely, it, it all depends on what the software engineer, right? That there, you've got a piece of software that's controlling both the camera and the processing hardware. Uh, and, and those two things talk together through the software. And yeah, the default software, as you mentioned, Apple and their portrait mode is quite exceptional. Uh, but there's a lot of other programs out there uh, when we were doing the uh, behind the shot uh, critique show, you mentioned other great apps like Halide. And, and there are many others too, that can go in there and utilize that technology differently. Um, having right. three of them that could run sort of in parallel to one another and potentially talk to one another uh, during that process. We, I don't have a white paper or anything in front of me to really dig into those details. Um, but it will allow all of those image processing apps that utilize what we have been calling AI technology to do even more with that. And if I let my mind go wild, it's like, okay, well, could you, uh, could you interpret, uh, and I haven't seen anybody do this yet, but could you interpret proper motion blur? Like as if somebody's running and you want to isolate them from the background and make the background have some motion blur associated with, and you could probably do that even now. Uh, but I just haven't seen people differentiate uh, in in those elements in those structures. Um, well, and, and not to mention the the processing power involved in that. Even if it could do it now, you're now talking about the first Snapdragon yet, the eight eight eight. That is to have three ISPs, and having three ISPs gives it that ability. It's it's not only the first one with triple ISP, but it's triple concurrency, meaning they can all operate at the same time in parallel. So again, from a, the Snapdragon is a system on a chip, like an A series from Apple, like an A14. But from a purely photography point of view for this show, that does give you an increased processing ability what they're going to do with it, I don't know, right? This is this is Qualcomm. This isn't Samsung. This isn't Huawei. But when they get this in their system, and when Google starts writing software to take advantage of things like this, if they do, uh, it's going to be interesting. And it translates, and by the way, to video too. I should say that. 
Oh, yes. Uh, and, and Gary uh, Monroe in the chat uh, said uh, something that I was going to mention um, is that you can use multiple cameras at once better. Correct. And and so on most cameras uh, or on, on most phones, you have two to four, uh, and that might even be bigger uh, in, in some models, different cameras that the only reason why they can't be used concurrently uh, or at least viably with all the bells and whistles turned on is you just don't have enough processing power. Uh, but if you have a, a super wide, a wide and a telephoto uh, a camera on the back of your phone and it's going to end up using a Snapdragon 888, there's no reason why you don't have the full ability to use all three of them at the same time. And possibly, uh, with that information being collected all together from those different sense, uh, you know, uh, uh, fields of view and, uh, and, and what have you, then you'll have the ability to combine them together in a better way than we currently have seen uh, well, for better depth control if you don't have a LiDAR sensor and for many other reasons. And, and I'm going to go to the iPhone on this, Filmic Pro, which is a professional video app for iOS. And I, I don't know if they, I'm assuming they have Android, maybe not. Uh, I've actually never looked that up. But anyway, Filmic Pro, quite some time ago, displayed a demo of an iPhone where the app was recording all four cameras at once, wide, standard, tele, and selfie. And they already have a feature in Filmic Pro where you can choose two of those, run them side by side, run them as a picture in picture, or record them as completely separate streams at the same time. So you could be walking down a street, filming with the wide angle at the same time as the selfie doing a blog post and record you as a picture in picture through Filmic Pro. It's amazing what you can do, but it all requires real time signal processing, which this ISP, by well, the way, and if you can only people do two commenting that ISPs, four. they thought it was an internet service provider. And I agree. Acronyms need to be a little more specific, but let, let's talk about what this thing does. Otherwise, 10 bit HEIF pictures, first Android chip to do that. 120 frames per second. Yeah. Yep. 120 frames per second, 4k HDR video on three lenses, right? Yep. Uh, 4k HDR 10, while at the same time capturing a 64 megapixel image, not that there's any hardware to do that yet, but you know the processor can handle it if you build it into the right product. 8K video, does 8K video, and low lux. I mean, this thing, it's well, a I beast. Mean, the, the low lux is, is, yes, signal processing to understand where the noise floor is, but that has a lot more to do with the sensor and, uh, uh, and that contraption rather than the system on a chip. Um, 960 frames per second. I know that um, uh, Sony had their Xperia 1, the, the first edition mm -hmm. of it anyhow, had 940 frames per second, I believe. Um, and there has been a, a number of other cameras that have had that feature. They would run for a fraction of a second at that uh, at that rate. And so it kind of became gimmicky and it wasn't really that useful. But if you saw some footage taken at that rate of speed with a car that was like zooming down a busy city street and having everything just kind of look like like matrix bullet time almost, um, right. it was a neat effect. And I've got some creative uses for that on a small scale, yet I don't have the budget to have a uh, just about thousand frames per second high quality camera that I could put lenses on and so on and so forth. But if I could put like a, a moment macro lens on this and just smash it with light um, and have it run for 960 frames per second for one second 
if I can hit that threshold, I don't know what, what kind of buff, they don't say exactly how long that uh, that time frame is going to be for this, but I welcome the return of that feature to a flagship phone. And if you can just crunch those pixels, uh, you know, that quickly at that frame rate, there's some interesting creative opportunities that will come from that. Well, and and the when I saw the 960 frames per second, the first thing I thought of is how do you how do you get somebody that doesn't understand it to relate to it? And it's think of it as high speed videography used in sports when they're watching a sports uh, event and they slow that footage down to see the person come up and see did somebody get their hand in between them and the ball something like that. That's high speed photography, and that's what this is going to give the average person. There's one thing in here I also thought was interesting, really the the last kind of big thing I thought, and that is this is the first CAI compliant smart camera. And CAI is Content Authentic, uh, Authenticity Initiative, which is a way to verify that the images are what they say that they are. Um, again, this is a chip from Qualcomm that phone manufacturers or any device really manufacturers can take and put in their device. The fact that the feature is in the chip doesn't mean the OS of that device will support it, but there's a lot, th this thing's going to be neat to see. And, and Gary chimes in, Gary should be on the show at some point. He's always got great comments on this stuff. He says, <laughs> why wouldn't you put this into a DSLR instead of just a cell phone? Well, you could. Theoretically, absolutely, you could. Uh, Zeiss uh, rolled out with a, a mirrorless camera um, recently that runs Android. You know that, that, that an operating system that this chip is designed to to function within. So there is no technical reason why it can't be done, and that might be right. an interesting paradigm shift uh, in the photo industry if that is embraced. If it's seen, but you're going to have the viable. same problem. Manufacturers aren't. Uh, manufacturers want to use their own chips. Exactly, because it's a branding thing. Oh, well, we have the Canon Digic. Right. I don't know what they're up to now, 9, 10, 10 20. whatever it is. Yeah. Uh, uh, and, and so everybody has their own branding. But honestly, I don't care. Did, when you read the comments on like a DP review article where everybody is just at each other's throats through the anonymity of the internet, um, how many people are clamoring about the Canon digital uh, 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 signal processor or the, the uh, image processor versus the Nikon versus the Sony. They'll talk about the output. They'll talk about the colors and how they might not be as accurate, but they don't talk about the uh, just the raw hardware inside because right. we don't know. It's all abstracted from our view. We can talk about the how, but we can't talk about the why. Uh, and so I think- Well, and there's the, also a throughput difference, by the way. You're talking, well, true. you know- an iPhone is still 12 megapixels. Compare that to a Canon R5, there's a big difference. And that Canon R5 isn't writing to, you know, chips that are built into it for storage, right? Right. The Canon R5 is writing to a CF card or an SD card. There's going to be different things happening throughput-wise that you're going to make changes to. But again, it would be interesting for these companies to push the envelope on their processors. We'll see. We'll see. There's a lot of companies pushing envelopes they right now. They do in-camera HDR. They do, absolutely. And uh, in-camera focus bracketing and, uh, and, and a lot of other stuff that is brand new within the last five years when we had many years in the photographic space where um, the only innovations were in your head. Right. And, right. and now there's so much more at our disposal. One of them, and that's our next story, 
is that young real Nuo, quick? Let me just say, Gary oh, Monroe yeah. said, "Steps back into the shadows. Too late, my friend. Too late. <laughs> Your voice has been heard." Uh, so, but uh, so young Nuo, uh, Chinese manufacturer, uh, started uh, making flashes amongst other things. Now into lenses uh, and cameras, they have <laughs> patented a modular camera system aiming to best smartphone cameras, which kind of ties into that same logic of why you can't do this type of thing uh, and marry these places together. But I, I don't think this will ever see the light of day. Uh, what, what do you think, Steve? I, I kind of hope not. First of all, it's only- a Oh, patent. I hope it does. I hope I can get this and really? sit it on a shelf amongst all of the other anachronisms that I have, yeah. including the little lipstick-shaped uh, 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 Litro camera and the uh, the light L16 camera, which I don't have one yet. I still want to track one. I just want to have a whole shelf of these things that should have never been made. Okay, but, and and yes, I would put one on the bookshelf <laughs> behind me. But there's a couple of things as far as this article is concerned. First of all, again, only a patent, arguing that you have the mobile ter terminal with an external lens assembly. Based on what it looks like and what's in this patent, it appears to be micro four-thirds, which makes sense, right? They already have, they, they are a four-thirds uh, yeah. system standard member or whatever it is. Mm -hmm. But here's one of the things. The patent argues that smartphone lenses lack performance and versatility that people want. But then, which which is true on, on its face, but then it goes in to show these proprietary connectors that you can actually see <laughs> in this thing. When you look at the proprietary connectors, nobody wants that, right? People are still unhappy that we have a lightning port on an iPhone instead of having USB-C. The last thing anybody wants is other proprietary connectors that, that they've got to deal with. For most average people, their existing phone is good enough because these are yeah, well, pro gear anyway. Well, and, and so you see this, you have a fancy lens and a fancy sensor. And when, when the two devices are decoupled, right? So the, that means the, <laughs> the lens and it's uh, cartridge, if I could call it that, if that's a, it's an appropriate word. Um, that's one thing that's entirely useless. It's a paperweight on its own. It, it, it does absolutely nothing. It sits in your camera bag, your purse, wherever, but it's too big to fit in your pocket. Um, and then the mobile control unit, which looks like a smartphone. In fact, it could very well be engineered to be one. Um, has a big circle on the back side of it with a sensor inside that looks bare, like it's it's open to the air. And there is no possible way I would want to use that as a phone decoupled from the device. It would only right. always be married together, right? So then why the heck... What I want to decouple it. Well, the uh, Rico had played into this with their, I think it was the GXR uh, camera where they had a bunch of different uh, uh, modules for lenses and sensors that would sit on the same camera body as a brains, as a processor. But they had the lens and the sensor together. In this case, they're separate. And, and I think that that's just a recipe for frustration because you're never going to use that device as it's being seen in the patent as a phone with a big bare sensor that as soon as you wrap your hand around, you get your fingerprints all over it. And yes, you could right. cover that. There, there's caps and stuff for they, that. They, they make a note that it would need to have a cap in the article. But, but here's the thing. As a pro, I could see them marketing this to average people, but you've still now got to carry two things that are the size of a phone. 
Whether and it's a phone or not, you got to carry use. two things, one that's the lens attachment and one that's not. And what that's not what pros want. Your phone, whatever it is, whatever your platform is, your phone's already got the AI power we talked about. It's got the machine learning power that we talked about. What what pros want, and I've heard people say, I wish that Canon would simply make the back of the phone with no screen and no guts and no processor at all and let me slide my phone into a dock and have my phone run my DSLR. What pros want is a phone with better glass, attachable lenses, like we and, kind of and have in some this ways case, now. In this case, the patent, at least the diagrams that we're seeing here, they have no other built-in camera, right? If it is a phone attachment. Uh, and so Which in order to exist. use it as a camera at all, uh, you would have to throw in this cartridge thing for it to actually function as as a camera. And that's just, it's an untenable, uh, no, it's, it's not going to happen. So- no. uh, Thank you, Young Newell, for wasting your money on a patent. Uh, maybe you get to file a patent lawsuit because somebody violates it at some point. Um, but this is one of those things that, to me, feels like a patent portfolio just grab of some concept that somebody wanted to create that they never will ever fully flesh out. But some portion of it uh, might yeah. end up being valuable to them in a litigious way in the future. Some guy had time on a Friday. And he drew the diagrams and he wrote a patent around it. And again, they were, you're able to get a patent on an idea without ever having made it. Yep. So. That's what we have. And it, I don't think it'll ever be, uh, not to say that again, I want to see this device. I, I want to buy it on eBay 10 years later after it's completely worthless, uh, and then add it to my collection. I, I don't. I don't see anybody spending their actual good hard-earned dollars on no, something No, no, like I don't this, see it. But, um, but photographers use all sorts of different tools, right? We're not just uh, beholden to the traditional camera technology. A lot of photographers have been using drones uh, as imaging tools. Uh, in fact, some have been enterprising enough to use drones as light sources, light painting with drones. And that brought me to story number four, which was supposed to be our last story, but I just had to add another one in, which we'll get to in a bit. But Story number four uh, from Petapixel. Photographer gets death threats over Utah monolith photos in the New York Times. So I guess we have to unpack a little bit of this, Steve. Um, first of all, what is the Utah monolith? So in Utah, and they've actually shown up in a couple other places now too, but in Utah, this, this monolith, which is arguably a misnomer, uh, showed up in the middle of this wilderness in Utah that is a protected area or should be a protected area. It's, it's not a big rock, which is what metal. the word monolith means, right? It's not a big rock. It's it's a big piece of metal. Uh, and right. So, and it's three-sided. A lot of people think 2001, a space odyssey, but no, this is a three-sided object. And it just showed up in the desert. And some people took that down. We'll get into that. It then showed up somewhere else. So there, somebody's putting these out there is really what it is. Yeah, and and so somebody put this uh, this structure out there, and and a photographer. And, I, and honestly, if I lived closer to this thing, I might be enticed to go out and do some imagery around it. And, and that's part of the problem. That's because, the issue, or at least uh, that's the argument that that's the issue. Right, because you know it, it draws an attraction, and you get a whole bunch of people trampling through some part of a canyon that might have a sensitive ecosystem, uh, you know, for that Instagrammable photo, and and to carry that forward, and then have more and more people want to go out there. We had an issue a few uh, uh, autumns ago here 
it was last year or the year before where people would storm into sunflower fields and take photos amongst the sunflowers and completely destroy the crops uh, because it was an Instagram worthy photograph. And, uh, and so they had to put a stop to that. But the same mentality, I see that applying here. Yes, I am enticed in some way. If I lived close enough to this thing, I might want to do that. And that's a bad thing because I'm not saying I'm disrespectful, but I'm saying that collectively there will be a lot of disrespect of people if I feel compelled uh, to, to go out there and do this. So guy climbs up on top of the monolith, as we're calling it, which I don't know if I would do that because, again, I'm uh, I'm interacting with something that I don't know uh, that I, I don't know if it needs to be preserved. Uh, it's not my choice to make. So I just would stay back. But he's standing on top of the thing and he's got his drone with a light on it. And he's set the uh, the drone to either uh, start right above his hands and go up or the other way around. It's impossible to tell from the photograph which direction it was going, but it does look like a star is like landing in his hands. Uh, I think it's a brilliant image for what it is. Um, I, uh, yeah, we could go into an image critique on this if it's not the right show for that. But uh, but I right. do enjoy the creative intent of using those ingredients all together to make this image. But what happened next, I think, was critical, right? Yeah, and and let me say, it's I love this image, right? I think the lighting on the ground, the shadow, it looks like he was holding it and let it go and it flew away. He's got some stars uh, you know, nothing other than him and the light above him is really overexposed. I think it's arguably an iconic photo for many things. But he drove six hours to see this, right, to practice his quote-unquote light painting. 30 minutes after he was there, four guys showed up. And they broke this thing down and broke it apart and put it in a wheelbarrow and drove it away. Those guys, Andy Lewis and Sylvan Christensen, told him, quote, this is why you don't leave trash in the desert. And, and, and uh, we should mention the photographer's name, uh, Ross Bernards. I don't know if we mentioned his Ross name. Ross Bernard, uh, right. Yeah. <clears throat> He's received death threats, though, so of the guys who tore it down. But um, the, the key here is, first of all, the threats of harm and hate speech and the, the, you know, the, the trolling is just ridiculous and unneeded. The two guys who tore it down live by a leave no trace philosophy. But... Even he said afterwards that he kind of felt guilty that he went. Yeah, I know. Uh, That he felt a little guilty afterwards because he saw 70 to 100 cars in one hour. He saw dog poop, human waste, toilet paper all around this. And that's the argument is if you put this, what's what's the movie? Uh, uh, If you build it, they will come, right? Yeah. And that's the thing is if you put this there, people will come and most people will not care about the nature and take care of the nature. But I don't think he was disrespecting nature. He climbed up on the monolith. He climbed up on the monolith and, and assuming that he's there uh, respecting nature. And that's an assumption that we're doing. Um, He made a, uh, I I would say potentially an award-winning image. Um, But it's, we can't look at our own good intentions and our and our good actions in isolation um, from something like this because we have so many, I don't want to say bad actors, but apathetic, ignorant, and arrogant people that right. they, they, they might not intend harm, but their apathy creates harm. And or their ignorance. Yes. 
Yeah. Right? And sometimes it's just ignorance. And and Gary said a cool thing in the which is true. Gary, I'm just saying, you can't hide. Uh, <laughs> and that is he's going to be able to say that nobody else has this shot, right? That yeah, we know of. Nobody enough. else has this shot. And he had a good quote. I think Mother Nature should inspire you to make art. I don't think you should put art in Mother Nature. I don't totally agree with that. But I you make know, art example, in Mother Nature all the time, taking nature into my studio. I mean, so I don't agree with that statement. Exactly. Either, but, but when but I go out and I want. Oh, sure. Well, first finish your thought. You, when you go no. out. Uh, when I go out into nature, uh, I will move things. Like if I'm photographing a waterfall and there's an errant twig that is rolled down the waterfall, but it's still in the frame, I'll pull that out. Cause that, that's like a pimple on somebody's face, right? Like if I, if I waited right, right, now, right. or it would have probably gone away. And so I'll make modifications like that to a scene. Um, but I'm not going to redirect the flow of water into a different location, uh, so that it's more pleasing for uh, for my photography. Uh, you know, th- everybody draws a line differently and that's just where I draw mine. But here's a question for you. Let's take a hypothetical photographer, a not, you know, Mr. Bernard's, but photographer, a takes a monolith in the back of their truck, goes out to this spot, sets the monolith up, climbs on it. Now understand this thing is actually buried deep, but still climbs up on it, takes a picture just like this. Climbs down, puts the monolith back in his truck. Now, he had to dig a hole to put it in. But other than that, would that violate the leave no trace philosophy? I, in my opinion, it would not. Um, it's, it's, as if, it's as if you were to walk up there and put a stepladder in there. Stand on the top of the stepladder and shine a light on your face and then take the stepladder down and, and haul it away. I, I don't, it's just an extra couple of footprints on the ground uh, right. rather than anything else if you're negating the fact that you might have to bury something. Um, so uh, now I really want to replicate this exact scene with me on the top of a stepladder with a <laughs> with a drone lifting away. This yeah. is a total... Uh, you know, uh, poor man's version of this kind of imagery that makes absolutely no sense unless it was a parody to this one. No, the only thing, I mean, I, I kind of wish the monolith was in the middle of those two rocks exactly so that he was in the middle. But other than yeah. that, dude, yeah. great shot. Yep. <laughs> you know, yeah, great shot. And, uh, and, and I really... I'm empathetic to the fact that he's gotten some death threats and some negative, uh, negative commentary. People can be really mean on the internet. Uh, people can be really mean and in it's, general. And it's ridiculous. You know, he, uh, he, you know, didn't, it, he didn't yeah, damage it, anything. It, it extends, uh, you know, you, you hear about, uh, type anything related to politics into the internet yeah. and you will get such vitriolic commentary and it doesn't stop there. Uh, it flows into the art world. In fact, one might say it started there uh, when the political landscape was a little bit closer together. The art critics were still at each other's throats hundreds of years ago. Uh, and, uh, and that continues to this date. Human nature at its finest, I suppose, Steve. Yep. All right. Well, uh, shall we get into our final story? Oh, yes. Uh, But before we do, before we do, uh, where can people find you online uh, behind the shot and your social media presences? So for social media, you can find me at my personal website, which is stevebrazel.com. And it's spelled the same as the country Brazil, but it's two L's.com. Uh, the podcast behind the shot is at behindtheshot.tv, not .com, but .tv. 
So make sure you visit both of those. As we mentioned at the beginning of the show with Princeton Photo Workshops, super excited that I've got a class coming up with Princeton Photo Workshops on uh, action, low light action photography, really focusing on uh, sports and my live music photography. So a lot of the examples I'm going to give are based in live music photography, but it'll, it'll cover how you get access to events that you want to photograph, what you do when you get to these events, ethics and, and uh, etiquette that you follow at these events, and as well, how to shoot in these type of low light events. Um, and then, of course, just here on Photo Geek Weekly now and then. Yeah, well, uh, I I appreciate your contributions to uh, to the podcast, sir, and uh, uh, looking forward to whenever I can have you back on uh, as often as ever is always appreciated. Um, I, I love it, uh, and that you're again that you're doing the live stream now. Love it. Uh, and, uh, Gary says that some people go so far, uh, into this whole leave no trace mentality that, uh, they'll even knock down stacks of rocks that are put up by other people. Well, I mean, Karen, you see who else is in there? Uh, yeah, Jordan Drake is joining. Hey, Jordan. Uh, hope you're doing well, man. Uh, and, uh, yes, listen back for the full episode when you get a chance. But, um, the, uh, the, the, the Cairns, uh, the, uh, Nanookshuk, whatever you want to call them, different cultures call them different things. They've existed across most continents, uh, as a way of symbolizing a food cache, a direction, a territory, a burial site, whatever. They've got a lot of, uh, tradi- don't knock those. Da- you don't know who made them. Uh, you know, I, I've made some and I've taken them down when I was done taking a picture of them because I've, I don't want to make something that is misrepresenting, but yeah, you know, everybody's on different sides and there's so many of different, uh, different ways to think about that. Um, yep. okay. Into our, in, into our final story, this one, uh, it, it broke, uh, was it, uh, two days ago, uh, after I put together the, the show notes and I just had to go back and, and add this one to the story, a leaked oh, ISO cell presentation slide and this is reported by dp review good folks there uh suggest that samsung is entertaining the idea just entertaining the idea okay just put it there of a 600 megapixel smartphone sensor ah okay let's uh again it's something that we can't just take at face value we got to dig into this a little bit open up the box and take out all of the frivolous bits and pieces of information until we find something tangible which starts with the iso cell technology which they're using right now uh which basically it's kind of like a, a pixel binning technology where you don't get that as a resolution if you have got a 60 megapixel camera you'll end up with like a 12 megapixel image uh you're just collecting the data separately and using software interpolation uh to figure out how it should all gel together down to the final end product and I've had opinions about this in the past. Um, I've thought that it was useless. I've thought that there are better ways to do it. And I've thought that, you know, if you need to go down this route, you have to create a huge amount of processing overhead to just deal with this information rather than making a better sensor if you're only going to be dealing with a twenty or a 12 megapixel camera to begin with, right? Just make good pixels good 12 pixels because we see that in all the other cameras that we deal with i don't know why we need another approach here um but (laughs) the 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 idea i'm laughing here because i'm having a hard time actually putting this into any practical sense 
you'd need to have a bigger sensor, obviously. There's just no way around it for the physics to work on a smaller sensor. And if you have to have a bigger sensor, you have to have a bigger lens. No matter what focal length you're dealing with, this thing is going to get chunky. How chunky, Steve? Well, I've got it on screen right now. And let's just say this is going to be one of those moments where somebody walks up to you and says, are you happy to see me? Or is that a Samsung in your pocket? This thing is just no. Okay. <laughs> just no. Nobody wants this thing. I don't believe that no nobody needs 600 megapixels on their phone. The truth of the matter is most people are sharing their pictures on Facebook or Instagram and nobody needs that resolution. Don't come to me with the cropping idea that, oh, it gives them room to crop. Nobody needs to crop out of 600 megapixels. And, and the, even if that goes down to 60 megapixels, 40 megapixels, 20 megapixels yeah. still, then what the heck was the point of going Why? to 600 to begin with? Why? <laughs> you don't need it. You just don't need it. Nobody has, the only people that look at a smartphone right now and go, I don't know, the iPhone's only 12, are pundits on YouTube things. The average person has no problem with the resolution of their Samsung Note or, you know, Galaxy or iPhone. They just don't. And the problem is you're also dealing with physics. This thing is going to have micron, uh, uh, 0 0.8, 0.8 micron pixels. Which is actually The new not iPhone that Pro small. Max. That's small. The new iPhone 12 Pro Max it's a big deal that that camera, one of the lenses, I should say, one of the cameras on the iPhone Pro Max, is a 1.7 micron pixel in a phone. And that was news. Well, okay, so that's- Point eight twice, is not positive news. Right, well, but it, it's, so it's twice the size uh, of, uh, of this. And, and the previous generation was less than half the size, uh, as this here. So we're not dealing with significant orders of magnitude and pixel size in order to generate the resolution that we're seeing. But to get this big, it looks like you were to take four dice together. I think that's a, a, a proper uh, measurement, but four dice, stick them together and glue them to the back of your phone. And is that a usable device? N you know what? Maybe it's nine dice. I'm not sure. It, it's hard to say based on their uh, their references or somewhere in between, but it's big. And yeah. if people want the inconvenience of a good camera, they're going to carry a good camera. They're not going to try to marry that to their phone that will forever be an inconvenience when you could have a separate device that, you know, is the impassioned photographer's tool to make a good image. And Gary, Gary brought up something in the chat that I do have to mention because I've said on your show before, the key differentiator for phone photography, for mobile photography is going to be when they get better low light and better zoom until they get the equivalent of a 200 millimeter zoom has always been my argument. We've got wide that does great in the right light. We've got, you know, medium 58, 65. Why, why are you trying to justify this, Steve? Why, why, I know. Why I know. are you on the side of this? Okay. But I'm just follow me on this though. So, but the argument could be made that if I, I can't say that mobile photography will take the next step when you can do a 200 millimeter zoom and not recognize that cropping a 600 millimeter uh, megapixel photo could get you kind of 
Are they simply trying to work a different way around the optics of it? No. Well, I, I think that uh, it's the same you see thing. What I'm as saying? Their, their does that make any generation. sense? It, well, it does. But their current generation of 108 megapixel tetracell technology, whatever you want to call it, um, that uh, that doesn't give you a 108 megapixel file. It gives you a much lower resolution version. Right. Um, and so you would be better off to design optics along a longer optical path with a smaller sensor uh, in it, like those periscope sensors that we know that Samsung, I believe, is also playing around with and experimenting with. Um, and so that's where you have uh, a, a first surface mirror uh, and some optics, I believe, on both sides of that. Uh, but most of the optical path is horizontal and then it shifts towards out the camera. Um, and I think that's the more viable solution than having this big brick on the back of your camera, which nobody, nobody wants. And, um, right. And I, if anybody complains to me and send me an email at dawn at com, if you want a camera like this, please discuss your reasoning as to why I expect no feedback on that point. Yeah. yeah. All right. I, I again I'm I I don't I want to it's like the last one. I want to see this just to see it. Yeah. Right. Yeah, and that's maybe that is a uh, a reason for an in-person trade show to exist in the future for all of these wacky prototypes to actually get go, some yeah. hands-on life and uh and to to see them in person, but I don't think it's going to happen. Um hey, Samsung got some patents now, I'm sure. Again, everybody's patenting everything these days. And I guess that brings us into our uh, our picks of the week, which I do believe um, there's patents involved in both of our picks to some level. Uh, it's a terrible Probably. Segue. But, uh, but there's a device. I actually have uh, an original uh, from a company called Looking Glass. And I'm just dragging it up here if my voice trailed off for a minute here. Is it that heavy? Uh, no, no, it was just barely out of reach. I, I'm poor at planning such things. And I'm I'm unzipping this this device. This uh, I backed the original Kickstarter of. Um, this is a looking glass holographic display. And it's it's chunky and reminiscent of that Samsung camera module uh, in terms of the device as you see it. Um, this could display things in 3D from different angles. And it, it's cool. I've used it a handful of times. It's just a novelty. I've uh, translated some of my 3D, my stereoscopic 3D images to this by building depth maps for them. Um, but the company is coming up with something new. And I jumped on board for this one. It's called the Looking Glass Portrait, which is a much thinner, more mobile uh, holographic display. And I know I did a 3D pick recently, the Loom Pad, which is also awesome and I'm still using quite regularly. Um, but this is currently on Kickstarter, and uh, they they have raised at least in Canadian dollars. It's showing me over two million dollars, probably just before two million US. And uh, they've added so much functionality to this device, including the ability. And this is where it becomes useful to just about everybody: is to take uh, photos taken with the iPhone portrait mode from the latest phones, which have embedded depth map information. And instead of translating that into a background obfuscation in a, you know blurring stuff in the background, what if you could use that in order to make the image into uh, just complete three dimensions from every possible angle um, and not just for photos, but potentially for video as well. 
And so uh, I got in at $199 US for this. I think it's more expensive now because that was the early bird, but it looks like it's only $249 now if you want to get in to a device that uh, can take stuff readily available from your smartphone with depth map information. You can generate your own. There's lots of other ways to do that um, and show it in a three-dimensional depth that the world has not seen with this level of ease and convenience before. Um, and uh, so, yeah, they, they got my money. I voted with my wallet on this one because I really think that especially with the amount of money that they're getting and the software suite that they are designing behind this, that it's going to be a really fun thing. Um, I don't have my hands on it. I have had my hands on their previous products. And so that's why I'm making it my pick uh, sight unseen. And, uh, and I think that this is going to be, especially with the interest in it right now, um, this is going to be big. This is going to be a, uh, a paradigm shift for people that are making depth related content. Uh, and it's the tip of the iceberg. So that, that is my pick. Well, and, and I had up, they've got an animation on there showing it in use on the Kickstarter page that I brought up on screen and they've got a Memoji on there, you know, the iPhone Memojis that are like, what was it? A Panda bear or whatever it is. Uh, and that's kind of cool the way that they're doing it. I kind of dig that. And could you imagine uh, if you could uh, adapt a uh, a camera to this and have a holographic video conference with somebody? You know, obviously you'd have to have two people with the same device, and that might be a small number unless you buy two of them uh, and you give one to a loved one, a grandparent or parent. Uh, and you, there, there is a kit available and there's multiple cameras that can interface with this properly that generate depth maps. And you could do video conferencing, uh, with this and feel like you're close enough to being in the same room with the people that, uh, you know, especially if they are of advanced age, you probably haven't seen this year, even though you really want to, and Christmas is coming. And I, I don't think this is going to be out for Christmas, but you want to have those family moments that feels like you're right next to somebody. And so many of us right. are not getting those moments this year. Um, and there, there is ways for technology to bridge that gap a little bit. The looking glass hug. Yeah, there you go. Um, and, and Gary, I tried yeah, just nobody asked something for those else 3D on... screens, but we got them. Yeah. Uh, I tried bringing something else up on screen. And of course, every time I do that, the app that I open loads on this screen and pushes Don's video off. So if you see that in the video where suddenly Don slides off and slides back in, I'll own that one. Uh, so my pick <laughs> of the week is a piece of software I don't think I've ever mentioned. I, I may have mentioned it, but haven't picked it before. And the sale is about to end. In fact, yesterday I got an email saying there was one more day. It's still up there. And I'll show it to you here in just a second, but it's from Isotope. It's Isotope RX-8, which is a new version of the I Isotope RX suite. Oh, what, Isotope what is Isotope? Is an Isotope is an audio repair suite of tools, and it comes in three versions. It comes in an elements version, which is like an entry level and gives you most of what you would need to repair audio at a certain level. Then it comes in a standard version, adds a few more tools, and then it comes in an advanced version and adds a lot more tools. Well, the Isotope RX suite elements is normally $129. That's on sale for $29. All of the element suites, normally $129 on sale for $29 each. But what you're looking at on screen right now is the Isotope Holiday Bundle. And in this Holiday Bundle, 
you actually get all of these items at the bottom, current versions, RX elements, ozone elements, neutron elements, nectar elements, trash, iris, bunch of other stuff as well. But just the four elements packages are normally $129 What each. do all of these it's different all- packages do? Like, I mean, I understand why you might want to run different filters or processes <laughs> on things, but um, just kind of throw me a little bit. Don't explain everything, but why are there so many different things? Okay, so I'll give you some ideas. And, and let me just say, for 49 bucks instead of the quote-unquote listed retail of 1200 this is an absolute no-brainer. This is the industry standard for audio repair and audio mixing tools. So RX Elements has denoise. So if we're recording this, I can denoise something. It has audio repair where I can bring up our audio in a spectral view, see an ambulance that went by outside, select it with a tool and say, replace it like an autofill tool in Photoshop. And it will fix that ambulance uh, you can do, for example, in Nectar. Nectar's great for voice. It's got fantastic compressors and EQs and noise gates. Neutron and Ozone are more for music mixing, but also have stuff that you can use for voice only. And hey, you get them in the package for $49. Bucks. Um, there's just some killer, killer stuff in here that I use on a very regular basis, the Isotope uh, RX suite. De-reverb, so if you're in a room and you get a lot of echo, here's another one that I've used, de-bleed. So sometimes I record my podcast, and I'll use Don as the example, although it has never happened with Don. My guest will have their headphones too loud, and they're in the UK. Their headphones bleed back into their microphone, meaning my voice goes onto their audio track about a second delayed from me. So when I put those two audio tracks synced up together, you hear me talk. And then you hear me talk again on their channel. The de-bleed will help you remove that very quickly, very easily. De-hum, de-hiss, de-noise. RX Elements is just a great suite. And for 49 bucks to me, it's just an absolute. As no soon as you describe de-bleed, I hit add to cart. Um, but yeah. I, before I bu- actually commit to buy, uh, is it Windows, Mac? Uh, yeah. What? what, what? Platform well, it's a on. plugin. It's a standard VST plugin. Now, oh, okay. RX so Elements a- also has a standalone app. I have the standard version, not the Elements version of Elements, because it gives something called loudness control, which lets you set the standard loudness for a podcast or a video right. to, to industry standards. But uh, they do have Windows versions as well. And for 49 bucks, it's just such a great, great tool. And I will say I'm going to give a plug to these people, and I don't know who they are, but uh, Ask, I think it's Ask.Video, has an entire class on isotope elements, uh, neutron, ozone, and nectar, uh, current versions of those with different instructors. And if you are inexpensive, it's like $15 for a month. But you can also watch five videos a day for free. And for example, there's probably 20 videos in the RX class that are some great information, but those videos you can go watch, you know, five a day for free and then support the company too. pay for it. If, if you like it. So why thank you for a wonderful pick, Steve, you're spending my money here today. Uh, here to help. and 
<laughs> well, no, uh, legitimately, uh, you know, if that if that does save me uh, paying somebody else to do it because I've got the software readily available, then you know, I'm I'm totally game for that uh, to be permanently and properly equipped rather than having to nickel and dime out subscriptions for so many different services, of which I have way too many right. as it currently is. Yeah. Well, you uh, use a service for your podcast called. Uh, Ophonic, and they, they now have a uh, uh, a standalone version, which I'm eyeing very seriously so that I could just pay that one-time fee, run it through it, process it locally, and hopefully get the same results. Um, that's just a leveler, and uh, uh, it's a system to remove some of these things like hums and hisses, and uh, but it doesn't do anything nearly as powerful as that deep lead thing that you mentioned, and that's a problem I've had with no. some guests as well. And let me let me just show this really quick. This is uh, Terrell just said that he got the bundle with his focus right for free. So if you've got the bundle on all this RX stuff, this is the the site I was talking about, which is ask.video. And you know, you can get it for 12 or 15 or something like that a month. It says 12 here, but other places I've seen 15. Um, you can own it for life for $30, the entire RX video manual. And when you go look at what I did it in that one, so let me jump out of that. When you go look at the actual RX suite, this is what you get. And let me just show you this really quick here because it'll make more sense if I can find it. There it is right there. So this is RX8. And when you jump into RX8, you'll see some of the tools that they have down here. So surgical, this, this image on the left is that spectral repair where you can select, that's somebody whistling at a concert. And they're removing the whistle by selecting it and saying, hey, go replace that. And it's kind of like autofill. Um, spectral recovery, guitar denoise. There's just a ton of stuff in here. And that, that uh, I, I have to say, yeah. just to, if you dial it back 10 years, the audio equipment yes. required to do this would cost you more than my car. Yes. And here's what the Elements has. Repair Assistant, D-Hum, D-Click, which is another really good one, by the way. D-Clip. Now, D-Clip is an interesting one. And I've used this where I didn't realize either I or my guest was too hot and the waveform clipped. What D-Clip does is it uses machine learning and, and artificial intelligence to rebuild the waveform, huh. which is awesome. Yeah, Voice denoise, tons of stuff in here. All right, Steve, yeah. that is an exceptional pick. You know, I were uh, photography related, but I do so much video work now, podcasting and so many other things where audio is becoming more and more important. Uh, and to put these tools on everybody's radar uh, is a great service. So I appreciate that. And I thank you for that pick. Um, and that winds us down to another uh, another uh, finale of the the podcast the final send-off uh where i say usually thank you for listening and uh, any feedback or especially feedback on the live episodes it's it's really helpful for us to build this out flesh it out in a way that um that will be even more conducive when i take the controls away from steve um and uh, thank you to everybody that was watching live and your commentary has been fantastic uh and so with all of that said i appreciate everybody listening thank you so much for being here and stay creative out there. There are so many ways for all of us to pick up our camera, shoot something that we haven't done before or that just makes us happy, spread more happy in the world, and stay in and shoot. <laughs>